Well, I'm trying to sort through this on-ramp. From those of you who stayed uh, and heard the 10 o'clock, we had Major Julie Harris. Is that right? Julie Harris? Okay. I was looking at Julia Harris, thinking, no, that's not right. (laughs) From the Tulsa Police Department, talk about her work. And um, this is the yin and the yang of what it means when people harm others. And there are no easy solutions. But I think as Unitarian Universalists, we have something to say. So there are three main parties involved in any crime or conflict, the victim, the offender, and the community. So the victims are the persons hurt or harmed. The offenders are the persons causing the harm. And their communities are the interconnected web of life. And what restorative justice asks is how this trinity of stakeholders, if brought together thoughtfully and carefully, can better resolve problems of violence. Can we do more than punish and lock away? The question is worth asking because overcrowded court dockets and prisons are not adding to society, rather draining it of human and financial resources. So in the 1970s, the U.S. began incarcerating Americans at globally unprecedented rates. In the decades that follow, the growth in U.S. prison population is more closely aligned by ideological policy choices than actual crime rates. So our country's experiment with mass incarceration hasn't significantly improved public safety. It is doing the exact opposite. It's consistently and disproportionately stunning the social and economic well-being of many, of poor communities, of communities of color. And it goes on for generations. So the United States, this land of the free, locks away its citizens at unprecedented rates. Our country incarcerates more than any other country. Any other country. In fact, our rate of imprisonment is more than five times higher than most of the rest of the world. Yet our crime level is comparable, particularly comparable to those stable, internally secure, industrialized nations, NATO, or I don't like the word first, first world, but. So we are no more criminal a society than, say, the United Kingdom, but we incarcerate citizens seven times more. And then our state. Our state numbers are worse Oklahoma exceeds our own national level of incarceration. Oklahoma has the third highest rate. Only Louisiana and Mississippi top us. 
Oklahoma far surpasses the leading nations. More than double Cuba's, Rwanda, the Russian Federation, incarceration policies in every region of this country are grossly out of step with the rest of the world. And this is crazy. While men are sent to jail more than women, the rates at which we lock up women is also completely out of line with the rest of the world. I found conflicting information about whether West Virginia or Oklahoma is first in the world in the world for throwing women in jail. This isn't a race we want to win. And while only 5% of the women in the whole world live in the United States, we account for nearly 30% of the women globally locked up. Oklahoma puts a higher percentage of women in prison than El Salvador, a country where abortion is illegal and women are routinely jailed for having miscarriages. This is terrible. Stark disparities in racial and economic compositions of our nation's prisons are as troublesome. African Americans comprise only 13% of the total population, yet are half of the prison population. This is wrong. Something is completely wrong here. Of course, we can't ignore the need for jail and prisons. We can't ignore the need we have for police. I want the police to come when I call. They're institutions that are really important to public safety. We will always want people who've been victims of crime in their communities to feel safe and protected. We just have to find better ways than locking away an increasing number. It's a no-win-sum game. Our own Unitarian Universalist Statement of Conscience when all the Unitarians got together and studied and looked at this, they write, the the American penchant for retribution squanders opportunities for redemption and rehabilitation and restoration of the individual offender. Failures in the criminal justice system have created a disenfranchised, stigmatized class In our penal system, punishment often continues even after those convicted have completed their sentence. Stripped of voting rights, denied social services, barred from many professions. If you're convicted of a drug crime, you may be ineligible for federal student loans to attend college. It's difficult to reintegrate back into society. Proven alternatives exist where victims and affected community members have a say in the appropriate punishment and the manner in which the offender repairs the harm. When that happens, when the offender has a say in how to right 
the wrong, that offender is less likely both to commit another crime and more likely to comply with the agreement. And diverting cases out of the traditional judicial system and into restorative processes can ease this caseload of overburdened courts. So we have to find the intelligent, compassionate will to use different tools. In our Unitarian Universalist language, restorative justice creates a process to bring people back into covenant. The covenant of citizenship, the covenant of family. It mends broken relationships in order to heal a community. It emphasizes repair. It's not a panacea. But what we're doing now is making things worse. We need to reweave the torn flat fabric and institutions caused by criminal behavior. You know, from our two readings earlier this morning, the ideas of restorative justice just aren't about solely the criminal and legal system. It can apply to the whole range of human institutions, from courtrooms to schools to families and to churches even. As I wrote this, I realized our children in their Montessori school went through a restorative justice process called a, a, a peace table. When they disagreed with someone or had a fight, or they had to go to a table, hold a rose, if you were the one talking, and try to make restitution, try to make yourself understood, and then the harder part, listen to the other person. So these aren't grandiose pie-in-the-sky ideas. It's something we can teach ourselves and teach our children. Because the heart of restorative justice is the basic recognition of the common humanity of all involved parties. So this work is philosophical, religious. It creates methods to dissolve stereotypes and worn systems ruts that we have in our thinking. And it helps us name fears that might be cutting through our impulses and encouraging us to lean towards punishment and revenge. That's what the talk by, by Major Harris, it made me bring up all those fears of how unsafe I might be and um, and she used the word bad guys. There are bad guys out there. And there are. There are. But if I don't manage that fear of thinking everyone might be a bad guy, it clouds all my judgments. And I'm tempted to veer off into our election cycle and the fears that... But I won't. <laughs> But it's all related, this level of anxiety and fear. So across Oklahoma this weekend, many colleagues, rabbis, ministers, priests, imams, are preaching on restorative justice. And this initiative arises from institutions, just like Hope, coming together to recognize 
all these problems, that these issues are central to a thriving state with healthy communities. The initiative comes from VOICE, our sister community organizing group in Oklahoma City, and they're several years ahead of us in in Tulsa because they have more than 30 congregations and schools and nonprofits working together. And what they've done after working together is discovered that the criminal justice system in Oklahoma City creates more harm than good, often. They've heard stories about people ensnared in this catch-22 cycle of mounting fees. People leave jail and the prison and may have anything from $100 to $20,000 in fees. And it puts them back in jail. That was a question I was trying to ask um, Major Harris about this cycle of, of it's, it's a debtor's prison, in effect, Um, (laughs) I'm trying to decide whether to tell you my own fears I was at the start of this investigation in Oklahoma City by different churches into the criminal system and how the beginning of forming relationships begins to lessen that fear. That that we have to hold the balance of the big picture, and I've said this before, this is why our religious tradition is important to me, because we deal with paradox. These bigger picture people who need to be locked up, the fact that we're locking up maybe the wrong people or too many of the wrong people, And then individual stories and how to understand where someone is in their own understanding of self and their own understanding of what they've done wrong. So I will tell you, it's it's a cold winter dark night, much like the ones that we have, we've been having this month. And I'm the intern in Oklahoma City, and I'm a passenger in a car filled with Unitarians from First Unitarian Church. And we're headed to an unfamiliar part of town, to me and to everyone else, East Oklahoma City, Midwest City. And everyone is consulting their phones and checking their GPS because we're looking for the Divine Wisdom Worship Center. Not sure what type of building we're looking for, and we pass it at least twice No steeple, no clear sign, but a large parking lot and a former standalone store. That's divine worship. And we're there to meet with a group from their congregation to coordinate a series of house meetings among what seemed like two very different churches, where First Unitarian is a 600-member church over 100 years old, in one of those beautiful classic New England Unitarian-styled sanctuaries, progressive religious community in the heart of the city, primarily white. Divine worship is non-denominational, Pentecostal, less than a few decades old, primarily black. But despite these theological and racial differences, what the two churches have in common 
is being well, as both being well-respected in their communities. Both are committed to improving the lives of folks in Oklahoma City. So a small welcoming group from Divine Wisdom invites us into their large, spare, open space sanctuary, a stage with a scatter of microphones, and you can tell they do pretty high-end worship. And sitting in a circle of chairs, we have an opportunity to have a reading and go around the circle introducing ourselves. Then we divide into pairs and get to know each other. And it feels thrilling. Something new is forming here. It feels awkward. Strangers are trying to become less strange to each other. It feels ancient. The markers that divide us looks, life choices, experiences, histories are older than we are. And it feels tenuous. This effort could easily fall away as so many other attempts to bridge human gaps do, are, can be. And we're given 30 minutes to get to know our partner. So I'm paired with this very thoughtful, intelligent teacher from Midwest City. We find common ground in our families and our children and our Mutual dismay over overcrowded classrooms. We veer off into music and books. We've just begun talking about how we were raised when we're called back into the full circle group. We have trouble breaking off our conversation. Reluctantly, we stop and join everyone else. Now we're asked to talk about our experiences from this brief exercise and starting a new relationship. As we go around, I am caught up short when my partner says, it was okay. We enjoyed talking, but I can't trust Kathy. I'm stunned. Had I said something so offensive, she felt threatened. I barely listened to the rest of the circle as I replayed our conversation. Nope, nothing weird. How could she not trust me? I'm I'm honest. Don't you laugh, Ken Blinkhart. (laughs) I'm mostly honest. (laughs) I try to be empathetic. I pay my bills. I keep my commitments. I'm a continual learner. I obey the law. It took some time to fully understand why my partner didn't trust Kathy Edwards. It's nothing personal. Who she cannot trust is an unfamiliar, not from around here, white woman. She cannot trust an outsider who's not made a clear commitment to stay in relationship with her and her community. She and her community have been repeatedly harmed, often unintentionally by the powerful. Oh, we have answers. Oh, we know what to do. Let us help you. Her trust has to be earned over time. Her trust has to be earned by showing up over and over again. And my glaring blind spot is inexperience, ignorance, and naivete. And the best antidote for those problems is getting back into the game, staying in the game. I have to be willing to make mistakes. I have to manage my own fears of seeming foolish. I am less useful to the world, to Hope Church, to my family, 
when my worldview is so solidified, it's too solidified to welcome and consider vastly different experiences than my own. So while I haven't been able to show up over the long haul with divine worship, the congregation of First Unitarian did and does. They've developed a relationship growing still today. And what happened as they continued working together is they found this common concern that surprised them both. Divine worship and their pastor, Theotis Manning. Theotis Manning says about his congregation, I bury more young people than I do old people. We reach out to gang members with education and programs to show them there's another way of life. And of course, we have relationships with the ones who don't want what we have to offer. At first, initially, First Unitarian thinks, you know, they're doing prison ministry and we're doing something else, but we'll talk. And what First Unitarian discovers are its own stories about violence, about policing and justice systems working well and ones working poorly. They find some of their own families are trapped by policies and fees far above and beyond reasonable. So these two institutions join others in Oklahoma City to begin digging beneath the litany of damning stories. So as Hope embarks on our campaign of house meetings in the next few weeks, we may come across our own church members struggling with the aftermath of jail or prison time. My extended family is touched by this deeply. Oklahoma permanently borrows ex-felons from from taking a long list of jobs. A state board can use a felony record as grounds for refusing to grant an occupational license. So someone with a felon, a felony charge, cannot become an interior designer, architect, physical therapist, land surveyor. And compounding the issue, Oklahoma counts as felonies, charges that would be misdemeanors in most other states. So are we doing the best to help people transition into leading productive lives? Are we bringing people back into covenant with our community and helping mend broken relationships? Are we fueling our fears or investigating them? The first two principles of our Unitarian Universalist tradition address the inherent worth and dignity of every person and justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. So consistent with these really fundamental principles, restorative justice helps us look at each individual and all the surrounding network, the harm and the potential for mending. So we join the statewide rallying cry today to listen how society often punishes more 
creating more harm. And we consider how our UU values insist we help people come back into the community. It's not a simple process. We have to learn and study. How can our community reweave the torn fabric of families and institutions? May it be so.